Hello, my name is Spencer Stewart. Welcome to another episode of Advancing Talent. I'm really excited to spend time with this week's guest. Joining me today is Dennis Richter. He is the Chief People Officer at Ad Hoc, and we'll learn shortly all about Ad Hoc. Dennis, uh, as I understand it, uh, has been recently recognized as one of the top HR execs to uh, to watch in, in 2023. Uh, he uh, comes to us with a great deal of experience, certainly at Ad Hoc, but uh, has had meaningful uh, roles at Meta and Google and Deloitte. Uh, and he started his career 12 years, as I understand it, uh, uh, in the Army and DOD uh, in a number of very high-level strategic uh, 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 positions uh, and opportunities. Uh, Dennis, welcome to the show. Yeah, awesome. Thanks so much, Spencer. Super excited to spend some time with you and just sort of chat through a little bit of everything. Uh, well, Dennis, why don't we just jump right into it? I really enjoyed uh, getting to know you uh, on paper, looking at your uh, background and I think one of the first thoughts that jumped out at me as I looked at your uh, experience and your overall career trajectory is that it is it is not linear, uh, and um, I I suspect that uh, uh, as you started your career uh, first with the army, uh, you probably didn't envision uh, where you are today and everything in between. Um, so maybe the first question, maybe a two-part question, uh, talk a little bit about uh, Ad Hoc uh, and, and what you do. I understand that this is a company that really originated in 2014 to, to really help, uh, you know, healthcare.org uh, uh, get off the ground uh, and has evolved uh, since then. But so tell us a little bit about Ad Hoc, your role, but then how, the second part, how you uh, your your journey, uh, how you ended up where, yeah. where you are today. Yeah, no, I really appreciate the sort of the tea up there because, I mean, it's, I'll be candid, it's one of the questions I've probably, you know, received most uh, over the probably the last year and a half is, you know, why ad hoc? Dennis, you know, you're at all these other places, like sort of how, how and why there. Um, and so what I tell you a little bit about ad hoc is, um, you're right, it was rescued, uh, created out of the rescue of healthcare.gov, um, our co-founders, Greg and Paul, uh, were part of the team that was brought in by the chief of staff and others at the White House because they're looking for the best engineers uh, because healthcare.gov has it launched, sort of, you know, historically, as most people know, failed almost immediately under the stresses of, of everything. Um, and so where they sort of came up with that off from it, when they were checking in to the White House to meet and, and discuss, they'd ask, well, who are you with? What company? And they go, well, we're just the ad hoc team. <laughs> and so it's sort of where it started from. And what's phenomenal about it is um, Greg and Paul, both engineers, taught we can do digital services different. We can put a human-centered design element to help support the just tens of hundreds of millions of people who leverage government services all the time. And so our work has really started in that healthcare.gov and then transcended into places like Veterans Affairs, um, HHS, uh, we have some federal civilian work in different states. And what brought me and sort of, you know, I'll start maybe to how I landed at Ad Hoc and then I'll work maybe a little bit backwards from the beginning. Um, what brought me to Ad Hoc is 
you know, I've spent my career in lots of different places. And the one thing I've appreciated at all of them is a different mission, a different value set. And then sort of how does that correlate to me personally, right? And so when I looked at Adhoff, I thought, well, they do all this work at the VA. Well, I've spent 12 years in the Army. My wife's a veteran. Um, I've been around you know, literally tens of thousands of uh, you know folks who have served my family. Um, and I've dealt with the struggles of accessing care at veterans affairs than VA. Um, I remember what it was like having to you know, go to an office and stand in line for two hours to get a printout of a document and then send that to a place and wait three weeks to hope I get my VA home loan approval. Meanwhile, you know, I've got my family and we're hoping it all works out. Um, our ad hocs help correct a lot of that and bring access to care to both the veterans, their families and others in a much more immediate and palatable way. That UI and UX component is just at the foremost of, of what we do. That's what drew me was the mission. Um, I knew at a certain juncture I was kind of ready for that next challenge leaving Meta. And, you know, I had some tech company opportunities, but what drew me to ad hoc um, was just the mission. I thought I could go to this place, work for a company who supports veterans. That's phenomenal. Well, when I went on site, um, one of the first things I noticed is we've done some work at SSA, you know, so security administration. Well, one of the first things that's on the wall in the office are some artifacts that correspond to some of the agencies we've served. There were food stamps on the wall because they help with access to those types of benefits for different people out there. That resonated with me because I grew up with nothing. You know, extremely impoverished, one of the poorest zip codes in the country in Erie, Pennsylvania. That was the first time I seen food stamps up close in since I was like an eight, nine year old kid. And all of those things started to resonate with me about, you know, I could come and work here, you know, as sort of the chief people officer, their first one, and help lead and hopefully shape and affect, you know, this group who's doing all this phenomenal work to so many organizations that are meaningful to me and so many millions of other people. Um, and so that's that's what brought me to ad hoc, um, for sure. Um, what I'd say um, was the icing on the cake was a leadership team, you know, obviously having interviewed at other places and talked to lots of other executive teams and boards. Um, you get a lot of people who want change and they tell you, you know, we really want to, you know, scale how we operate, invest in the infrastructure, put our people first. And when I start asking them, what does that mean? And how really willing are you to embrace this? You get the sort of that lack of commitment of, what are they really willing to do? Whereas the ad hoc leadership team was, hey, that's what we want you here for. We want to partner with you. We want to see what you can do to help take our amazing culture, hopefully to the next level, the infrastructure up to the next level. Um, that also really excited me and got me jazzed up because I'm like, you really want to invest in the people space. So that's that's sort of the why I'm at ad hoc and I do what I do there. Um, it, I, a little bit of the journey I'll give you maybe a the best TLDR version <laughs> of it I can because I certainly don't want to bore people with all the details. Um, but you know, I, I was a young guy who you know was about to become a dad, and um, you know, growing up as an army brat, I thought, well, you know, I, I could join the army, I, I'd have benefits, I could take care of what was soon to be my family my, with with my daughter on the way, um, and make my own way. And meanwhile, I knew I could leverage benefits to finish my degrees. And, you know, I had a plan and I had just 
a lot of luck, but also just a lot of phenomenal leaders around me throughout my military journey that would invest in me or bet on me when others maybe would not. And they're like, well, yeah, but he doesn't have this experience. They're like, but he doesn't need it. How do you, you know, give him a chance? I got to navigate so many amazing organizations, uh, work for some of the best leaders I've ever worked for in my career, but also be given opportunities that in a lot of what I'd say in non-military or non-government roles, you may not get unless you have 15 years of experience. What does that mean? You know, what, what is the relevant you know, industry experience? Um, and so navigating through different components of that um, w- was phenomenal. And um, as I sort of made the pivot out of the army um, with no clue of what I was going to do next, how do I translate what I did in the army and all these different places into something that's tangible? How do I build a brand around what I did that people could understand? Um, and so you don't get anywhere without help. You don't get anywhere without talking to people. And so this is where I first embraced LinkedIn and started reaching out and chatting with people. Um, and there were a lot of people who would just give me time because they would. I didn't ask anything of them except opinions, thoughts, because I've always tried to keep a, what I call a personal board of directors. Um, everybody waits till they're maybe an executive to talk to the board. Um, I've always kept a group of people around me who I know are always going to be honest with me and candid with me and not just tell me what I wanted to earn. So I had that personal board of directors coupled with these phenomenal groups of just strangers who would help me out and give me an honest opinion. And I was fairly fortunate that, that one of those connections uh, helped me get in and, and interview at Deloitte. Went through that process, worked there, kind of understood how they built a phenomenal organization and a great practice got to do a lot of great work working on huge large-scale enterprise projects that touched 500,000 people. It was a lot of fun. And then I started getting these random reach-outs from tech companies about program management roles. I'm thinking, well, program management is fairly a loosely used term out in the industry now. And I'm like, what does that even mean, program management? What they really wanted was somebody to come in and evaluate a current situation in the people space. They wanted somebody who was going to get in there and be operational, but also uh, be direct, um, be open-minded to learning new things. Um, and they wanted a different perspective. And so when you know, Google would first reach out, I was a bit like excited. Um, and then I you know, made the, the move out to, to the Bay Area and took on some wildly different opportunities while I was out there. I was in the people space, traditional people space, working on things and helping this you know, then was 45,000 person company, um, helped build what eventually became Google Cloud from like an infrastructure piece of supporting the hiring and the internal mobility to, to build that. And then I got to make a very different pivot into basically becoming a TPM, TLM, tech program manager, tech lead manager, um, because somebody took a chance on me that they heard what I said one time about leading is leading. I don't have to be an engineer to get out in front of lead engineers. And so, I quickly had that that card pulled and had that tested and got to lead building a Sarbanes-Oxley Sox compliant tool, uh, aptly named Fox and Sox, which was a blast. Um, and we had an amazing time doing that, um, which taught me that I struggled a lot with imposter syndrome during that time too. Um, helped me build some, some credibility on myself too. Like, hey, you can do this. Um, and then I made the move over to Facebook primarily because I'm not a huge social media user, but I know how important it is to people. And I'm there for the people, 
and to support the people who build the product that so many people love and rely on and use in a myriad of ways. Um, and I got to sit in some phenomenal positions there from uh, HR program management, supporting you know an 18,000 person org, to working in the office of the CEO, COO for a little while, to then moving into more of an international people operations space and building new teams and new programs, almost like startup style within a very established uh, enterprise company. So uh, a whole host of, of, of adventures. I'm sure, you know, maybe some of those you're going to pull apart and we can chat about. But uh, one of the things that I would tell you candidly um, is, you know, when you talked about um, how or did you kind of, you know, get to where you are? Five years ago or even three years ago, I would have had no clue that I would be sitting here as chief people officer, whatever. Um, and that's okay. You don't have to have it all figured out, right? So I think it's been fun to just sort of, you know, l- live in the moment and and not try and figure out everything that's coming. Uh, Dennis, um, absolutely fascinating. Um, I've been having a hard time cataloging all of my questions as you've been uh, sharing with us. But let me just yeah. start with the first one. Um, it, it feels like at a very... Uh, early age in your career, um, as you were transitioning out of your army service, you know, this notion of having your own unique personal board of directors and really, you know, reaching out um, and and networking, where, where do you think that insight came from? Where do you think that, um, that competency, uh, 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 comes from uh, was that a, a function of your time in the army, or is that something that you brought with you? That's a great question. I would say um, I don't know if you're terribly familiar, but you know one of the things I love. Um, a lot of people are very Myers Briggs related. I love the Hogan assessment. Um, I've done the Hogan several times over you know, 15, 16 year stretch. And the one thing that's never changed for me in the Hogan is my values set. But there's a social component of things. Um, growing up and you know, as a you know, 18, 20, 22 year old, I wasn't super comfortable in big social settings. I didn't love putting myself out there, but I worked on that slowly but surely, just kind of invested in that. Like, you know, I've got to get over this. Well, I'm going to be a leader of a team. I've got to get comfortable being in front of people. I'm going to, you know, want to try this new position and I'm going to have to pitch this in front of 20 very senior leaders. I have to get comfortable in those different settings. I can't expect people to adjust to me. And so slowly working on that got me a little bit more comfortable with sort of that um, being a little bit more social to build that network. I would say the personal board of directors component for me is something um, I think that I I started actually when I was probably, you know, in, in high school, but in a different component of things um, long before social media and the amount of followers you have defined maybe a status or a perception of status of things. I've always kind of viewed the, the quality over quantity of things. The, who are the important people in my life who are really going to be there for me when I need them? Um, who's going to be honest to me and who's going to want me to reciprocate that back to them? And so I, I kind of always held a, a tighter, smaller circle with acquaintances on the outside of that, but that tighter group. And the reason it sort of evolved into that board of directors is when I got into the work space, you'd always hear about 
oh, we're going to have to go talk to the board or we're going to have to go talk to this committee or the chairman of the committee is going to want to know X and Y. And I kept thinking, well, you know, how do these committees operate? Well, usually people are voted or elected to, well, you know, how do I find a group of people that I could help, you know, in essence, govern me, um, help me get out of my own way, reduce the blinders on my left and right, and just tell me the truth. Um, and so some of those personal board members are good friends of mine who have been in my life for a long time. And some of those people rotate out just like a normal board would because you need a fresh perspective from time to time. Well, how do you find those people? Well, you have to go ask them. And sometimes, you know, you have to be comfortable with rejection, right? Not everyone would be like, Dennis, of course I'll be there for you, right? <laughs> some people are like, sure, but I don't know what that means, you know? And so you kind of have these, you know, random moments. I think it was just me getting out of the way of the answer is always no if you don't ask. So just put yourself out there, right? What's the worst thing that's going to happen? Um, and so I kind of just built it through observation uh, that board and just had that evolve. Um, I just kind of landed on a personal board of directors, primarily because you always hear about boards. Every company or all these organizations, nonprofits have boards. And I thought, well, they are helping to shape and, and affect strategic things. So why not have a personal version of that? Love that. L let me ask a, a, a follow-up question. Uh, you said it one way, I'll probably say it differently, and, and that is, uh, to one degree or another, we are all products of other people's generosity. Um, and their, their aspirations for us when perhaps we couldn't see that ourselves. Um, yeah. And, and it sounds like you, uh, earlier on in your career, had a number of people um, uh, placing what others might say as ill-advised bets uh, on you. Uh, I, I think we've all felt that way. And, and so with this being very front of mind uh, for you, uh, how does your experience um uh, inform your kind of, uh, you know, talent development philosophy, uh, at, at, at yeah. Hawker, how was that perhaps informed yeah. at, at other places like Meta or, or Deloitte or, or Google? Yeah, no, it's, it's a great question. I think, I think there's, um, two components that most people, companies, organizations sort of anchor to, um, there's sort of what, you know, most people would perceive as like a competency model. So you have a, a certain amount of things that you should know or should know how to do that sort of, you know, would in essence check the boxes to get you ready for the next level. There's a very different component to me, which is often significantly more impactful, but sometimes harder to attain, which is the experiential model. What experiences can I have or can I impart on others or as a leader, can I give to people so that they can live it instead of studying it and becoming good at it because it's in a training module, you know, when you have to get up there and do it and own it and understand, you know, how well it went or maybe how well it did not go, the feedback, all the different components of things, the emotional toll, all that. Um, I think there's so much that the experiential piece at times is more important than that competency. I'm just learning it. Well, how do you get those experiences? Well, this comes back to, you know, people betting on me um, 
help give me a little bit of that. Well, I need to pay it forward. I've always been very much, you know, pay it forward. Kind of hard. Maybe behind me, you'll see this poster, like give more than you take, right? It's, it's now obviously next to it for, for other fun is 60% of the time it works every time, which is a fun little quote that I love from, you know, uh, Anchorman from a movie, but you give more than you take. That doesn't mean in a literal sense, right? Because there's going to be times where um, what you give to people, they're going to just take that. What you're hoping is they take what you give and they also pay it forward and that continues out. Well, if you can affect two people and those two people affect six and it continues out in that sort of exponential way, then, then that's how you shift culture at a company, right? That's how you shift a mindset. That's how you get buy-in. That's how you do all these different things of influencing stakeholders. And so I think, you know, it's betting on yourself, right? If I was taking this to like talking to people directly, sometimes you have to bet on yourself, you know, and that followership is just as important as leadership. And so sometimes you need to just be a good follower when you have your moment and you can step up and lead, go for it. But you don't always have to be leading or be the leader or be the person in charge have the most impact right and so i think if you look at things in a slightly different way um you can get just as much or more out of it and so can the people around you love that let me um ask one more question at least i think one more question about your experience um you never know i'm, I'm sure we'll uh, have a few follow-up or thoughts so um you you started by talking about uh, the mission uh, of ad hoc and what drew you. And uh, I don't think I'll ever forget, um, you know, you mentioning kind of seeing those artifacts, those exhibits on the wall and one of the food stamp and having that really resonate with you that it feels like the mission is incredibly, incredibly powerful at, at ad hoc. And I suspect that you're competing for a lot of tech talent, a lot of engineering talent, yeah. especially with your back. And, and so how do you uh, compete uh, in what many people are calling, you know, a war, war talent? And, and, and it's probably a much more pronounced war when it comes to technical yeah. talent. And, and so how, how are you doing uh, in this? What are some of your strategies? Yeah. Um, yeah, I mean, th th it is. I mean, it's a legit, I mean, I lived it in, in lots of different places. So at Deloitte, you've got a battle for the best minds across various consulting firms. You're also trying to pull people away from a Google to come support some kind of project or, that you have. Um, you know, Google, Facebook, Apple, Netflix, et cetera, all competing for the same kind of talent. But so are companies like that. And I think part of how we compete in that sort of larger, you know, battlefield, so to speak, for talent is, um, it's first getting your employees, getting our employees out there to not sell our mission. You don't have to sell it. Selling comes across almost disingenuous. I shouldn't have to sell it. I'm not here to try and convince you. I'm just here to share my experience. When you show up with, uh, with authenticity, you show up that you don't have an agenda. You just talk about why I'm here, why I stay here. Here's why our attrition rate is 11% lower than the average Fortune 500 company or 85 or 95% of our peer companies. Here's why, right? It's our values, you know, putting people first, 
right? Cultivating great teams, you know, like enabling customer success. When we talk about those things, we can give good, tangible things that we've done to support those. But when you talk to any employee at any company, they always forget everyone is a recruiter. Everyone. Benzer, if I ran into you at the airport and you came up to me and just happened to say, hey, Dennis, I noticed, uh, what, what's ad hoc? Like, what, what is that? Even though I'm not a recruiter by title, I could be an engineering manager. I'm either going to sell you on why where I work is unique and you may not, we may not cross paths again, but you may go to our website and look and go, wow, this is really unique and different, right? Or you go the opposite way if I'm maybe not, you know, communicating well about what I do and what our company does. You may be like, well, uh, it is what it is. It's not worth, you know, investigating more. So I think it's about getting people at the company out there to their alumni bases, right? Go out there and, and, and talk to different schools. Like everyone's kind of looking at different schools as well. These are the top schools of X. Are they? Right? Are they? I mean, you know, look at where Fortune 500 CEOs come from. How few of them come from certain you know, caliber schools that people would perceive as a certain caliber of, of, of institution. Same for work. Um, People would always ask me at Google or Facebook, is it the best place you've ever worked? I don't know. I haven't worked at every other company out there to draw a good comparison. And so I think if you're just honest with people, um, they'll appreciate that. They know when they're sort of being gaslit or upsold. And so when you just speak from the heart, that's what resonates. And like when I talk about ad hoc and I talk about, you know, we've been a remote first company since we were founded. It's not a gimmick. Right? This is since 2014. We've never pivoted from that. We never plan on it. We don't pay you different based on where you work. Lots of companies pay you based on geographical location. Um, there's lots of things that we do that are different, that are maybe the icing on the cake, but it's the mission and the work that bring people. All those kind of fringe benefits are just the icing on the cake for us. Um, and I think that's where a lot of companies come up short is they get a little bit lax of they have a brand awareness we have brand credibility. They don't get out there and try to stay as relevant as they can, or they stop innovating. They stop taking risks. That gives other companies and, and other teams an opportunity to swoop in and tell somebody, hey, there, there's a different place you could go and do amazing work. So Dennis, you mentioned that ad hoc has a number of um, very visible, very important um uh, organizations, uh, veterans affairs, social security administration, health services, um, from a cultural perspective, um, there's something to be said for really, um, you know, capturing the hearts and minds of employees and tying that back to the mission. And so with the type of work that ad hoc does, um, is it, is it more challenging because uh, there may be the perception that this is a third-party relationship between what's aim and say health and services or veterans affairs. How, how do you how do you navigate that? How, how do you make that connection stronger? Yeah, well, I think it's you know what I would start with is lots of companies um, get very wrapped up in defining what company culture is. Um, and or how do we maintain the company culture? And so sometimes I ask people, well, what is the company culture? 
And they'll be like, well, what do you mean? I'm like, well, help me understand what you think it is. What you actually realize is that there's 50 different definitions from 50 different employees about what company culture is. But if you ask them what comprises that, that's the more important piece. To me, when I think about company culture, I'm talking about fundamentals of the mission, the values, the principles. What are the non-negotiables that you're going to anchor to, that you're going to hold everyone in the company accountable to regardless of position? That's an, that's an anchor of culture. There are parts of company culture that have to actually evolve if you want the company to evolve and grow. So if, let's say, you know, the goal of the leadership is for the company to grow by 3x and a certain amount of revenue and a certain amount of time, well, certain components of the culture may need to shift to accommodate that. You can't operate a, you know, a 50-person company um, and then you get to a 500 or a 5,000-person company exactly the same. Certain things just have to change. You know, you can't maybe do things by consensus the way you used to. There's lots of things that have to change. It's more how you communicate that. Do you bring people along and help them understand why things may change? Um, that could be a part of company culture that like I've been very rooted to is that over-communicating to people. Because you know you often hear people say, well, there's a lack of trust in leadership at a company. If you really ask people what that means, more often than not, it's because they don't know what's going on. So if you just communicate with people and bring them along, or even better, empower leaders at every level to understand so that you can cascade that down and, and put that accountability on the shoulders of different people, even better, so that they're hearing it from the lowest level instead of just waiting for the executive team to tell you something. So I think for us, it's you know what we've kept important to us is, is our mission, our values, our people, putting our employees first. Those things haven't changed. You know, that's what we've been rooted in. Um, and if we were to ever deviate from something like that, we would have to get up there and explain that because we've been so anchored to those things um, and not just putting out some memo saying, hey, we're making a change. You know what I mean? Um, so I think it's it's very much the, the behavioral piece um, from, from leaders of all levels. You, you can't expect people to, to act a certain way if they don't see people acting a certain way. Uh, behaviorally, um, professionally, technically, right? You have to sort of set that bar. You have to lead by example. Yeah. L- love that. Let me let me uh, ask a question that may uh, take us down a different path. Uh, it's a question that um, I, I tend to ask um, all the guests. It's uh, it's a topic that is just forefront for many. Certainly, is for us at Western Governors University, and that is. How are you, Dennis, how are you thinking about uh, AI from a human resources perspective? And then how might you and, and your organization be thinking about AI from maybe an industry perspective? Yeah, no, it's, I mean, it's certainly the the dominant topic, right? I mean, I'd say of the day, but really feel like probably about the last year or two for sure. Um, and I would say from, from how we've viewed it, we're always looking to get out in front of and try some new things, take some risks, right? It's one of the things I will say, like, um, if, if we're going to fail, we're going to fail fast, right? But we're also going to 
get get out there and show people what we can do and maybe they like it maybe they like some of it maybe we don't like it maybe they don't like any of it um but i think we're certainly looking to embrace that from from a company perspective absolutely um, because it's not going anywhere um i think that's the one thing this you know a lot of people think oh it's just you know some fleeting you know topic personally i would beg to differ right and so I think this is something you need to lean into. I've seen this more even in the academic world. Um, you either embrace it wholeheartedly and say, hey, we understand you might leverage it for a paper, but let us know how did you go about doing it and why did you do this? And do you understand the facts, the principle, the basis behind what you had this create? And could you defend it without AI? Like, it's a more important conversation to have with folks. No different than what I've done with my team and with peers of mine in in the industry or across tech in general is as I've talked to peers of mine, you know, CHROs, CPOs, um, or, or other COOs and things that, like, how are you all embracing this and how would you embrace it? Um, there needs to be a, what I'd call like in the tech space, you always hear a lot about open source, right? Open source work. Why aren't we doing it more open source when it comes to, to the human resources component thing? people make the company companies don't make the people right why are we not leaning into the most valuable asset of every company which is the people i think for for the vast majority of conversations i've been a part of and what i view um it's going to be for me ai is it's the access to data in different ways and in an immediate sense and so i'll use a maybe a an example that i would be excited about ai helping my team so we've got people who sit in 46 states across the country, all different backgrounds, all different experiences, certifications, et cetera. Um, and there's times where we sometimes need information quickly because we're responding to a customer wants to know something and they want to know by the end of the day. How great would it be for one of the program managers to go talk to their HR business partner and say, hey, I need to know how many engineers we have west of the Mississippi have AWS certification, Scrum Master certification, have been at the company for this amount of time, been in this role for this amount of time, have held these three positions in their career, um, and could you get me that list? You could literally put that all in and have that instantly done because it's built on the back end of your HRIS. How amazing would that be, right? Because it's only going to be as good as the information you put into it, which means if you've got good data integrity and good processes on the front end, that means your back end product is going to be really great too. Well, what if the HR business partner is not involved because they're unavailable in the moment? Well, maybe you delegate that access to the right leaders and they can go pull that data, whereas before they were dependent on um, a, a data analyst, like a people analytics partner. You can find ways to get data in the fingertips of people who really need it immediately to make great informed decisions. I think it's a phenomenal place to be, similar to performance management. Hey, let's talk about trends in performance. You could quickly put 50 parameters out there and get something back. Um, I think I think there's lots of great ways to, to do that. That doesn't necessarily take away from people's jobs. To me, it just enhances the access to data that they're all fundamentally and, and technically providing in, in their own version, their own subject matter expertise. Well, certainly appreciate your perspective. Uh, much of what you've you've said, Dennis, um, 
you know, w- w- we are we are wrestling with uh, at Western Governors University. Um, I, I think you're absolutely right. Um, it's it's thinking about a future in which AI um, complements much of what we do, just in faster, better, more efficient ways. Um, I, I want to ask a question. Um, and I'm thinking about two populations at Western Governors University. I'm thinking about the um, the, the, the roughly 50,000 graduates uh, that will walk across a stage, earn a degree this year from WGU. Some of them are very young in their career. Um, some of them are looking to pivot into a different and so thinking about these two populations, those that are younger in their career, just starting out, and those that are looking to pivot, what, what advice would you give them? Yeah. I mean, it's, it's always sort of the, the million dollar question, right? Like, you know, going back to experiences, right? So I've had the fortunate um, pleasure to have, you know, 20 plus years of experience in a myriad of places and be around tons of other people and share those experiences. Um, I think I'd give some really simple high level advice to begin with, which is, um, just don't be risk averse, be willing to get a little lost. It's okay. Right. That's okay. Drift a little bit. Um, especially when you're getting your career started, um, there's no better place to be when you get five, eight, 10, 12 years into your career, um, you'll sort of start to slide into that, what I affectionately call sometimes the professional midlife crisis. Um, so, you know, you've been doing something for eight, 10, 12 years, but your things around you are different. Maybe you have mortgage in there, maybe you have family, you have kids, you're saving for their education, all sorts of other factors out there. Um, you may be less inclined to go out and take that other opportunity because of those factors. Um, Whereas when you're a little bit newer and you kind of bounce around, you know, 12 months here, 14 months here, 18 months there, you get these different experiences. You start to at least figure out what you may not want to do and why. You you know, you may not have it all figured out yet, but at least you have some good influencers to go, you know, I tried the recruiting thing. I just didn't love it. But you know what I loved about it was the relationship building. I love the relationship building. Well, maybe I can try HR. You know, maybe I can build different relationships there, you know, but that's lacking operational. And I want to, you know, get in there and be methodical. Well, maybe that leads to HR program management, right? You can build on all of those things through shared experiences or make a hard pivot somewhere because why not? You know, the vast majority of recruiters that I've hired or worked with, um, there's no degree for recruiting that I know of. I mean, unless, you know, somebody out there has invented something, I, you know, it's come along yet. I've, had people have English degrees, psychology degrees, accountants, communications majors. You know what they all have in common? A love for people, a love for connecting, right? Uh, you know, then get out there and leverage what you're passionate about and put it to work in different places. Um, I think that would probably be like my my first bit of advice is just bet on you, have fun, get a little lost. You don't have to have it all figured out. You don't need a five-year plan or a seven-year plan. You need a 12 to 24 month rough idea 
but live in the three to six months and what's manageable, what's tangible, what can you realize? And then look at that three, six, nine, twelve, and start, you know, kind of measuring that in an iterative fashion. Don't get too hung up in, you know, five years, I want to be here. Um, ask yourself, why do you want to be there? Why do you think you need to be there? Um, that that would probably be the first question I would ask them. Yeah, love that bit of advice. Uh, drift a little. I think that's a phrase that I'll, I'll remember. Um, Dennis, I can't thank you enough for uh, spending uh, time with me and, and sharing some of your hard-earned wisdom. Uh, ad hoc sounds like an incredible place uh, with an incredible mission. Uh, for individuals interested in learning more uh, about uh, ad hoc and perhaps any career opportunities that you may have, where should they go? Where should you? Where would you point them? Well, um, first I would say, well, let me point you right to me. Find me on LinkedIn, right? I mean, honestly, friends, reach out. Let's have a conversation. Um, and it's not just about ad hoc. It's just about let's build a connection, right? Um, and, and let's start from there. Like, But if you you know want to learn more about us, I would highly encourage you. Uh, you can go to ad hoc team, so A-D-H-O-C-T-E-A-M dot U-S. Um, everything that you need to know about us there, about us, our approach, our services, all of our open roles. Um, and just the first thing you're going to see when you click on the join piece is a huge team picture of everyone. So our company color is green. You'll see everybody in their ad hoc green, you know, hoodies and t-shirts. What you'll see are lots of smiles on their faces because most of those people in that picture from a few years ago, 90% of them are all still here. Those are the kind of people that I would start to connect you to once I understand what you might be looking for. That's going to be the beauty of it. It's not going to just stop with me. It's going to start with me, and then we're going to go from there. And so I tell you to you know check out our site, uh, learn a little bit about what we do, what makes us different. Come find me on LinkedIn, get you in touch with some people across our team, whether it's my shared services team or other folks out there in you know, specialized uh, spaces. Um, yeah, don't don't be a stranger. Dennis, thank you so much. I really appreciate spending time today. Awesome. Thanks so much, Spencer. Really appreciate it. 